to the cherry tree Who else should climb in there but little me I held the trunk with both my hands And looked abroad on spacious foreign lands I saw the next door garden Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s canon. In this episode, I speak with Vincent Peake, a vocalist and bassist of Montreal, Quebec's Groovy Yardvark. So 1994, um, Eater's Digest is released, and as far as first records goes... Uh, that's a really, really good one. I mean, it's really polished. It's, it feels like a second or third record in a lot of ways to me. Um, can you maybe describe uh, the journey to get to that first record? What was kind of the Quebec music scene like in the late 80s, early 90s? And what kind of uh, Canadian bands kind of influenced you on that journey? Well, thanks for that. Well, um, to backtrack a bit, Groovy Yardwark started back in November of 1986. Mm. And uh, so we recorded three demo tapes um, before getting to our first record, uh, One Fine Day uh, in uh, 87, then we did the promo demo 89, and another one called The Late Race to Zero in 91. Mm. So yes, we had have a bit of uh, experience in the studio at that time, mm. and we had been touring these demos uh, for, for the first seven years because we did not know how to do a record. We didn't have the money to, to record that many songs, and... Um, and albums were out, so anyway, CDs were getting in. So it took us a while before we got to that point. We had a, a record company uh, called YMX that helped us out for that first one. So Eater's Digest is a mix of really older stuff that we had recorded previously that we re- repolished, as you say, and plus, of course, all the new stuff that we were writing as we went along those years. So it was a, a big, it was a mixture of seven years of composition, uh, which makes it, I think, a very varied record because it was written on, on such a long period of time. Influences for us, uh, as far as that style goes, were were far and and uh, far and away. We did not have any um, thing to compare it to uh, as far as French, like uh, hard rock, alternative music went. Mm. We were with Grim Skunk, pretty much the first bands to come up with that style, if you like, right. and uh, sort of implemented this new. Um, like your alternative rock uh, in Quebec. So we were, we had to go far down the road in the 60s for, for people like Robert Charles Lebois, who was our, our favorite rocker back in the day. Hmm. Often back was a great uh, rock band from the 70s and 80s. And Plume La Traverse, these were the, the top three um, rockers that we, we thought were the best and were the most popular. But we derived from those guys and really put a lot of punk and metal into it because we were very much influenced either by DRI and NDC and GBH and uh, Genetic Control here in Montreal and all these amazing hardcore bands. And we would go see all those shows back in the day in Rising Sound and Fulfilling Electric. But we were also very much influenced by prog rock because, you know, mm-hmm. we were getting into the uh, having really good uh, M39 pot <laughs> and we were like <laughs> tripping our brains out and listening to Gentle Giant and Genesis and Yes and, and Mahavishu Orchestra so it was like two these worlds colliding together that, that sort of made our style of, and if you want and, and a lot of people would say well you can't combine two different styles like I said we said fuck it we do what we want <laughs> and so that's kind of where we were coming from uh, to cross over you know the, the hardcore punk metal side with the more of the uh, prog side that's interesting because you can, you really can hear all of those kind of influences 
within Groovy Aardvark. I mean, yeah, it was great because we could Groovy Aardvark. I was lucky enough to have really good musicians because I was writing a lot of the stuff and um, the ideas I had, um, I couldn't even play them on guitar myself or I could, I was bass player, but <laughs> I had the guys I could just sort of sing the riffs to and they could actually pull it, pull it off. Interesting. So I was lucky to have these really great, great musicians that and I wasn't tied down by any idea. You know, I knew the guys could, could do it. And so it was great to have that huge canvas in which uh, Groovy Arvark could pretty much lay down everything uh, that, that I was thinking of. And uh, as far as names go, I, I usually don't ask the origin of a name, but uh, Groovy Artwork is a unique one. Uh, what's the backstory and how you became to be called that? <laughs> well, finding names is always hard, and the first name we had was the Schizophrenic Muff Diver. <laughs> um, so we we went by the name SMD, because, uh, <laughs> nice. you know, um, acronyms were very popular at the time, like, you know, I was saying MDC and GBH and, and all that. So I, and SMD sounded good, but the Schizophrenic Muff Diver part... Um, had been thought up by our first singer, Eric Lajambe, and he stayed for only couple, the first couple of months, and then huh. he went to study mathematics. <laughs> but, wow. and you know, the muff diving part was not, didn't relate much to our personalities, if you like. Right. We were more of a uh, joke band. We were listening to a lot of um, uh, stand-up uh, comedy back then. The George, we, we discovered George Carlin <laughs> together and, and became really enthralled by his, his humor, and so we would like to, to, you know, to keep it uh, light and, and, and humorous, so we came up with that name because we were big fans of the Pink Panther show back in the day ah. uh, on TV, right? And uh, in that show, there was the Ant and the Aardvark. Huh. We really liked that show, so we just came to, with Groovy Aardvark because we, we needed to change the name before the first demo came out in 87. And what happened was we put those two words together, one, one uh, on top of the other, and the two O's from the Groovy and the V from the Aardvark made a face like instantly. Huh. And we came up with that logo. Uh, almost on the spot, and wow. we, we thought it was a strong logo. It was, and uh, that's why we uh, stuck with that name. Now, did that name ever kind of work against you later in your career when you wanted to do kind of like a more serious material, or was your band kind of thought as a certain thing that it maybe wasn't? Yeah, and you know, in retrospect, I would have chosen a different one, mm. and especially here in Quebec, where people do not. Uh, like in more in the provinces, do not speak a lot of English. They couldn't even pronounce Aardvark. Mm. They had no idea what it meant. So everybody here calls us Groovy. Groovy, <laughs> nice. It pretty much went to that. I think the English side thought it was kind of a joke name. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess you could say in some respects it did, you know, it, it might have um, held us back a bit, but um, it became just Groovy and, uh, and you know, once we thought maybe we could change the name, it was too late. We right. said, no, we're, just, we're going to stick with it. But I always thought it was an original name. I thought it was a great logo. Yeah. And, you know, there's no way in hell anybody else in the world is going to name his band Groovy Aardvark. So there's no, <laughs> there's no chance of, of anybody, you know, copying that name. So <laughs> It is 100% unique. That is right, sir. You are not wrong about that. Um, you mentioned um, <laughs> the kind of language issue being a band from Quebec and I'm curious. Um, you're the, you're the only second uh, artist I've had. Um, Kim Bingham from Me Mom and Morgenthaler I've had on the podcast. But and I asked her the same question. Being myself from English Canada, I'm curious. Um, writing and recording material, being bilingual as yourself, is that a um, a conscious decision on what song is you're going to write the lyric in English or what song you're going to write the lyric in French or is there something about being able to communicate something only through a particular language is which is comes to the decision to do. 
That, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, to start off, like uh, our very first years, like the first seven I was talking about, it was all English. Because mm. we had, uh, like I was saying, we had no example of another French artist, uh, Francophone artist in Quebec that was doing this kind of right. stuff. And the the feeling was we're never going to get out of Quebec if we if we stuck to French. So it, uh, for us to sing in English was the normal and uh, the, the way to go because all of our most of our influences were from the States and the UK. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were big fans, all that. So the English uh, language was for us the rock and roll language. And since I was bilingual because I'm French, but my dad's English, so I had... Um, I could write in both fairly easily, and I could speak both fairly easily. So it wasn't even a consideration that we would even sing in French at one point, because at first it was only English. There was no way in hell that we that we were going to make it otherwise, because, you know, when you're young, you think you're going to travel the world and all that, and that's great to have those dreams. And so it, we just did not have an example. But after a couple of years, like seven or eight years, I decided to write one in, in French, mm. it was called Yet Quelqu'un, which means, is there anybody? Is, is there anybody out there? And, and lo and behold, man, um, it just changed everything for wow. us, because now people who were coming to see our shows who couldn't speak English finally understood what was going on, and we had a text that spoke to them, you know? And right. most of our crowd was microphone at the time, so it really changed a lot of stuff for us and the, and the communication we had with the fans, and we realized we uh, needed to do both, if you like, because we were a bilingual band. You know, we spoke both, and and I thought if we represented... Well, me and Mom is a great example of that. They they were the, made me the first to show us... I think they were they were singing three languages, even four. Yeah, right, so exactly. was Grim Skunk, also very world-worthy, and they were singing five or six, five or six different languages. So uh, we started using some French later on. So And we realized it was a good idea because we were going to get a lot more airplay. We were going to get a lot more people to listen to what we had to say if they understood, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, so uh, we slowly but surely started going to the Francophone. But I, I say Francophone, but it's, it's Joal, which is the Quebec uh, slang for mm. French, if you like, you know. Right. It's really a, a specific way that, that Quebecers speak. It's called Joal. And so I, I was writing in Joal, which was... Not at all popular back back then. Uh, in the 60s, like I was saying earlier, Plume La Traverse or Robert Charlebois would do it, but we hadn't heard it from, from any more recent bands in the 90s since. So it was it was good for us. It really was, like I say, because people could understand it. But we still wanted to um, reach a, a larger market because we were very uh, strong with the um, tape trade, international tape trading scene. Mm. You know, we had a lot, a lot of, we would give out demos back in the day to fanzines and we got a lot of good responses and we would sell demos internationally. So the English part of it was very important so that we can get our message across the world. But uh, we realized it was important to speak the language of the most of the people that came to see us. So, and, and then in terms of which one, no, I, w- I wouldn't decide which one would be in French, which one would be in English. It would sort of come naturally, mm. I would say. And I have to say it was much harder to make French sound rock than English, because in English we had all the examples from, right. you know, everywhere from the Chuck Berry to, uh, to, you know, Nirvana and all that. So, you know, we knew how it works. In French was harder because we did not, like I said, have that many examples of how you can deliver uh, that kind of music and in French and make it sound good, not make it sound um, cheesy, right? Exactly. And so that was a that was um, a, a conscious uh, work that I did to 
try to find the right words that would make him sound that would rock the, the words and 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 not making them sound forced in, right, in any right. way so and look Yitzhak was the first example of of that writing and i thought it, it worked really well and i it was you know the more you go at it the easier it is after a while so i got the hang of that and started writing more and more in french so that we we remained a bilingual band you know from mm -hmm. that point on that you had both three independent releases at that point did a label get involved how did you fund kind of your first kind of major release well the first demos were really the first one was released by us we we had summer jobs and we put, each put a thousand bucks in to uh have a professionally recorded demo this was in 87 we put four thousand bucks into our first demo and and that really helped us because we were selling a lot like tape trading internationally we were getting really good reviews on how the sound was and how you know kind of um original Groovy Artworks writing was, and really, uh, we took off a lot with that, and so we would sell demos internationally. We had a P.O. box that we rented, and we, you know, every couple of days, we'd go in and, and pick up the letters and sell demos that way. Then we always had jobs in which we put some money into the fund to, to help the band out, mm -hmm. to buy a truck, to buy a gear, so we were very independent. There's also a program here in Quebec called the Jeunes Volontaires, like Young Volunteers, which... Um, gives you a grant to mount an artistic project. <laughs> so they, they give you like eight months to think of something up and do something. And so uh, what we did was finance our second demo and third demo with that government program. So that was a lot of help. 
and that also helped us to uh, organize ourselves because you have to come up with the bills, you have to come up with, uh, you have to explain uh, your expenses, you have to explain the work that you're doing to get to the recording, you know, so it really gave us a chance to learn about finances and learn how to save money and put money at the right place, you know, uh, and be more independent financially. So the, those first seven years before Eater's Digest, we were completely independent. Mm-hmm. But for the record, we had, at that point, we had no money at all because we were putting everything in, back into the band. So we were rolling, we had good equipment and all that, but we, we were, you know, we were poor. So uh, the, we required a record company to help us out to uh, put out Eater's Digest. So at, from that point on, we started working with record companies. And what was that adjustment like, you know, going from purely independent, do-it-yourself kind of efforts to having now somebody else kind of helping you fund things? I mean, have, have somebody else maybe... Yeah, you know, there's, with every, every good company, there's good and there's bad, you know. Yeah. And we're really happy to have financial help and have um, resources in which we could uh, plan ahead and, and buy stuff that we needed, like, you know, just pay the local every month and all that and repair the vans and all. But... Um, they're very greedy. They ask for a lot in return. <laughs> yeah. And that was the beginning of, of a really hard journey for us with, with that particular record company because we signed for seven years. Wow. I mean, seven albums. Wow. That's huge, right, for the yeah. time. But there was mm-hmm. nothing else available, and we trusted them enough at that point that we said, well, let's do it. Um, and we put our faith into them, and it, it blew in our faces pretty quickly. Um, no, I mean, we did three records, three really good our first two records with them but after that it just went to shits and it was held to try to get out of that contract we had to pay a lot of money to get out of it and um then we went independent again for many years and uh said we'll never sign with another company again (laughs) but um and but the one thing that we did do which was intelligent was that we would pay for our own master tapes Ah, so they did not have any control over the music they could you know had control over sales and all that stuff and and we 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 never had numbers and it was very opaque that way the they were doing business. We never knew exactly how much money was coming in and all that. It was really complicated for nothing, but we had no idea back then. We thought it was always like that. And mm-hmm. well, we, you know, talk around and we mm-hmm. say, I think you guys are getting shafted. And it was hard, you know, we can't trust the people you're working with, and you, but you're not sure if they are, you know, just jiffing you or not. It was, it was, so that transition was hard because we were really happy to do the work ourselves, but at the same time, we were relieved that we could give some of that work to somebody else who was supposed to do that job. But, and it, it went fine at first, but it just, like most things, they got greedy, you know. Exactly. They started signing other bands that made, um, that made a killing, that they sold a lot, and then they got into that sphere of, of money bracket, if you like, and then right. they just, they, they changed. They really changed their attitude towards the whole thing. And since we were not selling as much, they sort of shelved us and put, you know, left us to dry. And it was, it was hard. It was hard on the band. It taxed us a lot. Uh, it was hard to keep focus and, and keep it to the music and all that. You know, we had to fight for our rights. And, and so that transition, I have to admit, was was hard. And, you know, from that, like I, I mentioned Groove Skunk a lot because we, we started all together. We were brothers and we our both bands pretty much started at the same time and had the same crowd, the same kind of career. They uh, were shafted by Cargo Records back in the day. I think Cargo owed them twenty to 30000 wow, bucks and wow. and. Grim Skunk decided to do something about it and become their own record label, hmm. which was Indica Records. Wow. In 97. So they took their matter into their own hands, and they were very courageous and brave to do that. And it was hard work for them to do so, but they did the right thing because to this day, Indica is still uh, running strong. And 
they took their own destiny into their own hands, you know, which is something Groove Yard Rock had not done in the day. And looking back at it, say, well, maybe we should have done that. But back in the day, we were so young, we had no idea how things work. But um, it, it would have been, I think, the thing to do. So today, you know, we're out of that contract. We're, you know, we're still, well, we, we released, we're releasing all of our uh, material on vinyl with this company called Slam Disc. I think you've talked to Jesse. Mm-hmm. And they are great. They are like a punk rock label. They they do it for the right reasons. They have uh, heart and they and and they uh, they're very honest. So I'm I I've never been happier with a record company than I am with I am now. Thirty years on the road. <laughs> so yeah. So like I said, to answer your question, it, it was it was hard transition. And um, if we had known, I think we would have continued being more independent and taking matters into our own hands. Now there's one track off uh, Eater's Digest that I'm. Interested in hearing a little bit more about. Uh, if you could take a deep dive on it, I would be grateful. Um, you'll have to excuse my pronunciation, however, as I am straight from Saskatchewan. <laughs> Local VC? Yes, we, uh, Local VC. Local VC. Ah, nice. That's another one that's very joie. We had a local in Longueuil, and that's all about that, those years where we would we had no money to, to buy meat to put in our spaghetti sauce, so we, yeah. had, we put bread instead of meat. And uh, we, we jammed over a, a restaurant, it was called Delight Donuts, and uh, we would jam so uh, loud that all the, uh, the cutlery and the glasses would shatter <laughs> on the floor because of the vibrations. And old George was a, a really nice uh, Greek uh, dude um, who spoke almost no French and English. He was patient enough to let us jam there for six years. Wow. So he must have injured like hundreds and hundreds of jams, of Grubiard Rock huh. jams upstairs. But he... he he liked our determination. He liked us as, as a group. You know, we were we were good, good friends, and we would pay our rent every month. You know, and sometimes <laughs> we're a bit late. I go and sorry, George, I'll get you. I'll get you money next month. You know, but we were always uh, we always paid, and he liked us a lot. We we renovated that apartment and our that local uh, like from scratch. It was huh. it went from uh, from a hole to a really nice six and a half apartment, and we had a three and a half, which became our local. We worked super hard at that for the most of 1988. And he was really, uh, he couldn't believe the, the, the job that we did with his upstairs. And so we were paying super cheap rent. So anyway, so that, like, as you see, is all about those years, like those mm. formative years in Logay. Ah, sweet. So what was touring Eater's Digest like? I mean, how far, I mean, did you do her outside of Quebec to work the record? Or did you just kind of keep it within province? Um, well, we, we um, created a network of touring uh, in the province of Quebec that had, had to be done so far. Um, we had to um, uh, appeal to, to kids in schools, you know, who were um, pen pals of ours. Um, and this is all, again, with the, the uh, tape trading network that, that we were part of uh. um, across the world, but that was very strong in Quebec as well. So we had a lot of pen pals, and from those letters, we got, we exchanged numbers, and we started talking on the phone and see if they could have us up for a show. And so a lot of these shows were built from scratch, from kids in each uh, community, right? And, and so it, there, was, there was nothing organized for that scene yet, for that type of music. So we built the scene pretty much show by show. And, um, and lo and behold, though, the kids would show up. And these shows were really cool. And I mean, it was like the thing to do in that city that night, you know? There was nothing else right, more cool right. than having a rock show and <laughs> having a thrash and, and a yeah. mosh pit, you know? Mm-hmm. It was all quite new to, to, to everybody back then. And so we built it... Uh, brick by brick like that, and then we would go back because it was a success, and we would sell demos, and, and then we made T-shirts, and we started selling T-shirts, and the whole thing um, grew 
exponentially that way. And so that was the way we did it at first in right. Quebec. It took, a, it took many years to, to build that um, network. Uh, but once it was installed, um, it was working really fine. As far as international touring, we would play um, like North by Northeast in Toronto. We'd be invited to do that a couple of times. Um, we had not toured the rest of Canada ever before, uh, as of 94. But we did go to France. Wow, yeah. We had a connections for, with, the, with the, the language. We played Midem, which was um, sort of a gala of, of, of music in, um, in the south of France, where they have like the biggest cinema thing. So we played there. We had a couple of shows in Paris, but you know, one-on shows, which didn't really amount to, to anything concrete for for the rest of the, for the future. But we still got a chance to, to play Europe, which was amazing. We'd never been. It was it was a thrill. So our first record was really all about um, building a network of shows in mm-hmm. the province of Quebec. Interesting. And what was the kind of um, France's reaction to your type of French? Oh, they couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> really? Wow. They, they had, even talking to them, it, we, had really? to, we had to really make an effort to, to speak, you know, the good French, which we can, of course, <laughs> but to, because they just couldn't understand. And it was fascinating to us that it was, it was such a stretch for them to understand. Yeah. It. It's the same words. They're just pronounced very differently. Wow. You know, there's a lot of that in everywhere in the world. It's like yeah, fair enough. Maybe yeah. a, 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 like an Australian talking to... Uh, like uh, somebody from uh, Newfoundland, like you know, yeah. there's a big difference. Yeah, yeah fair uh, But yeah. it was it was fascinating. They couldn't understand a word of it, and we would even talk amongst ourselves in like a terrace or a bar, and people would come up to us and, and ask, "Are you Swedish?" <laughs> no, we're speaking French. That's from, from what? From Quebec? <laughs> really? They were people had never heard that accent. They they were fascinated, wow. and then we you know we talk normally, and they would understand everything. Say, "Oh my God!" They had no idea. <laughs> and wow. we had no idea that they had no idea <laughs> so it was fascinating to see that we okay we need to really to make an effort to to make us under, understand ourselves in, in especially Paris but it was and then all the people say you know what my grandparents used to have that accent this is the accent of the old French back in the days <laughs> like in the 1700s oh, wow. this is like considered to be more like the archaic type of French well it comes from somewhere, you know. Yeah, we didn't absolutely. invent it. It, yeah. it. it comes from the boats. It comes from, yeah. you know, Quebec was um, built on prisoners and uh, all the misfits from the, <laughs> of, uh, of societies of French. So I guess maybe it comes from that, you know. But yeah. it was fascinating to find out, uh, like ling- linguistically, uh, that the joie was not understood at all in France. <laughs> fascinating. It is fascinating. So going into to, to vacuum then, which is one of your your most popular releases as Groovy Aardvark. Now, making your first kind of record with the, underneath a record label now of coming up with new material, was there any kind of pressure now put on you knowing that um, the first record was kind of cold from all your years before that, but now this one's maybe two years worth of writing or a year and a half worth of writing? Yes, yes, absolutely. There was, there was a couple of uh, leftover material we had from the past that we'd put on here, but it was a conscious decision to write new stuff. Hmm. It wasn't such, well, we, the, the pressure was on our, we put on ourselves. Uh, um, we didn't have a time limit at all for the record company. They were just go for it. But okay, cool. what happened was, and this was a really good thing for us, uh, Marc-André Thibault, uh, one of our guitarists, opened up a uh, recording studio on the south shore of Montreal here in, called Saint-Mathieu-de-Belay, hmm. which, is, which is my hometown. But Marc-André, with the help of uh, three other people, mounted um, this studio called Studio Plante Verte, Green Plant Studios. And so once that was up and running, we spent a whole lot of time there, and we were not 
clocking by the hour. We're not paying by the hour, you know. So we were like paying a, like a, a, one price for for the record, which right. was dirt cheap. So we we spend a lot of time there. Like we're talking eighteen hour days, wow. and and uh, at nights I was doing vocals at night and recording during the day. I was like sleeping there. So we had a lot of time, which is why that record was made very fast, if you like, in 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 terms of months. But we spent hours and hours there. So. I can hear the cohesive side of Vacuum more than on Eater's Digest since it was recorded on such a shorter period of time than the first one. Uh, to me, there's more of a, like a, a fine, uh, defined line between all the songs, and because they were they were recorded, you know, pretty much one after the other, and we were really lucky and to, to work so much and so hard to write these songs, and because we would write and record them right on the spot, right there, you know. Wow. So it was amazing to be able to spend that much time together. Like like my brother, he would work. We all had jobs. I didn't have a job. I was uh, all in in the music. But two of the guys had jobs where they would come later, you know, to have supper there and stay up all night and they go to work. And it was it was crazy. But we were, you know, we loved it. It was like a dream come true to be able to spend that much time. And I think it sounds uh, even more polished. It sounds better. Mm-hmm. I think I think the bass sounds better. Mm-hmm. I think the playing is better. And the, the the writing is good. This, I think the vocals are, are stronger. Um, in, in in many regards, it, it might be I guess my favorite record because it was such a uh, a joy to make, and we're really really uh, invested and uh, inspired, you know, by by what was going on. So it came out what a year and a half later, which for then was you know for the amount of music that's on there was not a lot of time. And um, if you could take a. A deep dive on a couple of tracks for me, I'd really appreciate. One is, of course, um, one of the singles, uh, Dérangeant. Right there? Yes. And the other one would be yes. uh, Human Candles, which are, are two right of my standouts on the album. Can maybe um, tell me what you remember about writing and recording those two tracks? Yes. Dérangeant uh, is always a, a pleasure to talk about because Dérangeant means uh, annoying. Ah. means like a pain in the ass in some word. Uh, like, but not deranged, but... Um, Okay. More like annoying. Right. So this is what happened. <laughs> we met this guy called Jean Langlois, and he became our our, uh, our manager, if you like. But he was he was just a friend from that we met uh, here and there, and he he managed us for a while. But then he, um, of course, without us knowing, was spending our money and and buying stuff for himself wow. instead of of uh, he would he would take our records and and sell them in record stores and not bring us the money back. Wow. Say that. So he 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 printed T-shirts himself without telling us. He would sell what? T-shirts in in high schools, not tell us about it, and and you know he he got away with that for about a year. Wow. Then of course you know word came out to us that he was he was doing this. So we we what we did was uh, went to his house, to his apartment. We confiscated all of his belongings, <laughs> and we uh, put him in a van and went to his dad's house in Saint Bruno here. <laughs> And we said, hi, Mr. Langlois, uh, your son owes us a lot of money. He, this is what he did for us. He lied to us all, these, uh, all this time. So we would like to have uh, the equivalent of what he owes us or, or we're holding his gear. And the guy goes, his, the dad goes, oh, my God, this is the third time he does this. <laughs> so he's a compulsive liar. And, you know, oh, my God, when you think you know people, you know, it's crazy that he would do that. And he would hang out with us. He was a friend. That's crazy. It's incredible that he would do that and... and have that behavior with, with people that you're supposed to, to help and out. So I wrote Dérangeant for him. Huh. The, 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 the Dérangeant, the plan words, is, is Jean Langlois. Which is, so the whole song is about him, 
it tells the story. I wrote that song in 10 minutes. Wow. And it is to this day, Tyler, the song that brings me the most money from SoCan. Really? Uh, 26 years later. Wow. Because of this guy, I've, 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 made, a, <laughs> I've made a financial... Like, <laughs> I, I could, I, I'm, I'm making money uh, from this song uh, to this day, and I cannot thank him enough for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I use it to my advantage. I never thought it would come to that, but it did. And it became uh, uh, our first like big single, if you like that, at commercial airplay right. here in Quebec, right. which was unheard of. This is like '96 now, but of course, you know, Green Day and, and Offspring, and now the whole that whole movement from the states was coming strong here in Quebec. So, like, uh, alternative rock was was all was a hype, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was all the rave. So, us Groovy Art Rock and Grim Skunk, we got a lot of airplay because we were like the like the Quebec version of those bands, if you like. Right. So exactly. we had, you know, we we really rode that wave uh, very well, and it was very, very good to us. So that's the story behind Dérangeant.
And then um, Human Candles um, is a Martin Dupree song. He joined the band in 94 for the first record. He was the, like the new guy when he first recorded. Um, so he was from Longueuil, and he, he joined the band. He joined the band in 93, and he made a big impact on us because he had, he had great ideas. And he wrote Human Candles, huh. and I wrote the lyrics. It was about, you remember maybe, well, during that time, there was a sect in um, Switzerland, and uh, they all died, a bit like a Jim Jones there. Okay, they all committed, uh, like thing, a, yeah. Yeah, like a um, social, like a group suicide. Right, right, right. And yeah. um, my mom had people that she knew from from her hometown that were in that. Wow. But of course, nobody had any idea at the time. But it was this couple living right next to, well, a couple blocks down from my mom's house, that that were part of the victims. I think there were thirteen people who who did that, who committed suicide together. And huh. and I couldn't believe that. You know, you never. I would cross these people on the street, and you never thought they would be drawn into a cult like that and, and do the ultimate uh, note of of, of um, killing themselves like that for to accede to a better life. And you know, they were the guy was a guru, and he had them he had them uh, hypnotized to the point where, like Jim Jones did, you know, yeah. to do that. So that human candles was about that because I think it was uh, they lit themselves on fire. Wow. And so the whole um, the yeah. So that's why the song is the darkness of that song. Um, the text is really goes with I thought the the the, the heavy uh, riff that Martin came up with, mm-hmm. and I think to this day it's one of our better sounding uh, songs. It's in drop D, so it sounds heavier. Ah. It's, uh, it's like a, in the key uh, below the E, the normal E, because you know like Sabbath or drop C, you know, so mm-hmm. it just sounds a bit more heavy. So I always thought that sound that song sounded really good, and it, it was fun to record. And we you know we did some effects and the voices and all. We we made it really trippy, and um, but it was not a live song. You know, live it didn't pass as well. It's one of those huh. record songs. You know, right, right, right. It's like more of a, like a deep cut, like you say. Like it, we we played it a lot live, but it just never had that impact that we thought it would have. Um, so we we dropped it out of our set, and it remains to this day uh, one of my the most pleasurable songs I, I can listen to. Uh, on that record ah nice I'm glad we share that connection because that, that yeah that track stuck out from, from Listen 1 I, yeah, I've put it on repeat a few times so yes it's, yeah, it's yeah very very good riff yeah yeah and that last riff the last fuck that was very 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 heavy riff by Martin there now the artwork for Vacuum um, it disturbs me to this day I don't know why but can you take me through of the concept of the artwork for Vacuum both um both both sleeves for eaters and vacuum were not what they were supposed to be. Oh. Um, for technical reasons, we never got to what we wanted. But so the guy on the cover is called uh, Robert. He's the bouncer to uh, the Metropolis, which is uh, <laughs> our rock venue. Yeah, and uh, we knew Robert because he was working backstage all the time, and we got to be friends. And uh, he's a great guy, and we invited him for the video of Le Petit Banar, which is the last song of Vacuum. Um, if you see that video, at the very, very end, at the end, he, he's, he has a vacuum in his hand, he's in the church. And we really liked that image, because we, we recorded the, the, the demo, uh, the video first. Ah. And um, since the, my first idea of vacuum did not work out, we were kind of in a bind, and we thought about that concept, which turned out to shock a lot of people. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, well, I got used to it, but I have to admit it's kind of a weird, very weird. At the same time, we wanted to remain, uh, like we wanted to keep our underground spirit, if you like, so right. we knew very well with that cover, it was not, <laughs> you know, maybe Walmart wasn't going to take it. So 
we were like okay with it, but I have to admit it was not our first choice. And then, you know, we had our record launch set up, so we 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 couldn't wait any longer. So that was that, and it was a really nice picture. It was like professionally taken. The colors are nice. But yeah, the colors are the image beautiful. of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and like the the purple and the blue, and mm-hmm. that was like our colors for that that tour and all. But yeah, I know <laughs> you're not the only one to to mention it. <laughs> all right, thanks. But uh, Rob was really happy to be on the cover of Groovy Rock Record, and he's to this day he's really proud of it. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, we gave him uh, we gave him merch anytime we see each other, and it's fun because I love Robert a lot, and he went through a tough time recently. Uh, we almost lost him. Oh, he's, no. he's back on his feet, but um, I kept in touch a lot with Rob, and it was fun that. Um, time in our lives, we we got to uh, make us uh, friends. You know, we became yeah. friends because of it. So yeah, that that's the cover of that. You know, even for the vinyl, we said, do we do we want to change the cover? I said, no, nah, no, nah, we're just going to keep it. <laughs> I think it looks great on vinyl too. And uh, was he, did it take any convincing for him to? pose in such a manner or he was just game from the beginning not at all he was super game you know even like <laughs> nice. to take his shirt off that, that was the whole thing no he you know, he's a punk rocker he he liked Gigi Allen and oh, you know he yeah. was into that stuff so yeah. he had no qualms with it at all and, and that was a big uh question of mine is so I hope Robert doesn't you know find it insulting in any in any way and no no he was huh. he thought he was hilarious because if he had had if he had had any doubts with it and he was like not happy, we would have probably changed it. Right, Because right. we, we didn't want to manquer de respect, like short, or not having any respect for him. Right, right. But uh, no, it was it was all good. Cool. It's good that you guys are actually friends because a lot of times the person on the artwork cover is just like a model or something. So it's cool. That's the backstory. You guys are actually tight and still to this day, which yeah, is awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 He was he was a gentle giant because he's a huge guy, right? And yeah. Big man. He had to act tough because. He was working like the the biggest rock venue in uh, in Montreal, and <laughs> wow. you know, and so a lot of people, fans and groupies, wanted to get backstage, and he was the guy to <laughs> to tell him no, you know. Right, so right. he 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 had to be uh, he had he had to be strong and had to be kind of a mean guy to to do that job. But he was a he was a very nice guy. Now, um, you mentioned music videos just there uh, recently. Uh, I'm curious throughout um, the Groovy Artwork kind of run, what was um, your guys' approach to music videos? Um, that's a good question too because the, our first videos we had this guy um, this band in Quebec called Les Kulak was Julie a song by them? yeah Julie that's right and Mike Sawaski um, Mike Sawaski the guitarist is from Saskatchewan oh really? I didn't know that yeah awesome. <laughs> yeah uh, so Les Kulak had the, the singer called Didi Fortin Didi uh, um, uh, well he committed suicide in 2000 but anyway he would he was a video director and uh, before being in the Kulak huh. so when he heard uh, our song Burning Rubber on Eater's Digest he for some reason loved that one and huh. he wanted to, to direct it and so we, we, we met him I was super happy to meet that guy because he was really well known he was you know uh, one of our, our top singers back then and you know he had a storyboard and uh, he said okay oh, this is what I want to do and so it's going to cost 22,000 bucks shit we don't have you know, our record cost 15,000 bucks <laughs> we're yeah. not going to put all the money into one song which is not a, uh, it's not going to be a hit song at all it talks about matricide you know it's it's very heavy wow. lyric yeah. uh, by this guy killing his mom it's pretty pretty dark stuff yeah. and so there's no way you know music plus are going to going to want it to touch that at all but that was his take on it I said well thanks uh Didi, but there's just no way we're going to put that kind of money so that was that was strike one then uh, our record company, one of the good things they did, they, they knew people called in Spike Film. 
They were a young startup company they were for videos, and they we started doing videos with them, and they would do a lot with not a lot of money. They were really really good to working hard and putting long hours and, and not having us pay overboard. So we joined with them, and we made all of our first clips with them. Yetu quelqu'un for your FYL to start with, and then Derangeant. Um, so our first, I say, five or six clips was with that same gang oh, wow. of Spike yeah. Film. And uh, we became friends as well. And uh, they, they had concepts. I had my own concepts as well. We would just, you know, uh, have a beer um, and, and develop stuff ourselves and together. And so that's the way we were able to do so many pretty cool videos on such a short time because we had a great team, uh, like a small team, that, that was ready to, to put the hours in and not having us cost too much money. And then we had... Um, this video grants called uh, Music Action here, Music Action here in Quebec. Mm. That we started getting grants for to do videos, and that helped a lot. Uh, so because that did not exist uh, before that, I think it's Factor in Canada. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, video so, Factor. Yeah. Factor. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So uh, the French version was Music Action. So we and since we were quite you know getting uh, we had a name for ourselves, we would get the the grants, and so we started not having to pay so much. Well, I think we had to put half of the money and the, right. the government would give the other half, which was amazing because we had like, access to better gear, have a better, uh, bigger team, and make better videos. And Music Plus, which is with the equivalent of much music mm-hmm. here, uh, they, they, they would have us on interview a lot and they came to our locals and they really stood by us and they, were really, they really had our backs. And so they would play the videos a lot and that helps. It helps any band, when your video plays on, on heavy rotation, people just know it because they would watch the tube a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we would go anywhere in Quebec, and people knew of that song because it was a video song. Right. So that really, really helped us a lot. The Music Plus were the big medium that helped Groovy Aardvark and the whole alternative Quebec scene the most because they were open. They didn't have a format like Show My Fam here, like a rock station didn't touch us. Wow. Um, and yeah, we had to go to Sequoia, which is the French radios. They played Derangeant, like I said. Uh, but Music Plus, they played all our videos, nice. any style. So that helps so much. And plus, which I did not know, Music Plus, uh, each video that you used to play, we would get a dollar. Really? So it was kind of, it was, there's a lot of money involved in that. So yeah. we would get so, so, so kind of checks after a while, a couple of years. Huh. Holy shit, there's like all this money coming from the videos. That was amazing. So we would put that money to do, to do, to do more videos and more stuff. You mentioned Music Plus. Um, what was kind of English Canada's rock media like towards you guys? I mean, Much Music, Chart Magazine, Exclaim, things like this. Um, how how did they kind of treat your band? Yeah. Well, with indifference, I would say. Really? We did not get yeah. a lot of, of attention in outside of Quebec, uh, especially not in Ontario. We, we would play Western Canada, but it was uh, for the French communities. They had um, they had like their own French system going where we they they paid our tickets and we would have like a, a one week's run of shows. Um, we didn't play Saskatchewan that way. We played uh, Manitoba, uh, Yukon, and Alberta. Huh. So we did we did a lot of um, of, of touring. I'm um, not touring, but it's like like in-house shows for like a week in these French communities, like in Saint Boniface huh. near uh, Man- where near Winnipeg. And uh, Legal near Edmonton and uh, Yukon because there was a French community in uh, Whitehorse. So we did a lot of that, but we, no like extensive uh, cross Canada touring. Huh. And uh, so we got some press for that, but uh, as far as Exclaim goes and those others, they never really acknowledged us that much. 
uh, not as much as as they could have, but we were not touring there a lot, so they had no real reason to to do so. You know, like we would play Toronto a lot for the, uh, the the Canadian Music Week North by Northeast, but you know, you play with 400 other bands. You have to make a mark, uh, but if you're just doing one show uh, at the Bovine uh, at midnight, you know, right, you yeah. never know who's going to show up. So we would do those, but it never, you know, went to anywhere more than that. So we got a lot, like I say, a lot of tape trading uh, back in the day. A lot of word of mouth came in Europe. You know, we we were doing better in France and even Germany because Grim Skunk toured Germany a lot, and they would bring our CDs there, and, nice. and we got to a point where we got a German tour out of that wow. uh, and a French tour back in night. Well, when after vacuum came out, we spent 60 days in Europe. We did 45 shows there. Wow. That's amazing. And it was all mostly Germany, a bit of Denmark, a bit of Belgium. And we were more known in Germany than we were in, in Ontario. Huh. That's crazy. <laughs> because Grim Skunk had, had, uh, passed the word around and, and uh, people really liked it. And, and we got a tour out of that. And that was, that was, hard tour but it was like the best time of our lives to be able to to play every night like that in different towns and uh, in different squats and uh, very very punk attitudes it was was hard but it it really we became road worthy after that no kidding you know we it was it was um a life changer for us we came back here we were like fearless (laughs) we weren't afraid of anything after that man because we've been through hell in these underground um German communities where they don't speak English, where they're very hard, uh, no meat, uh, they don't like capitalism, there's no McDonald's, there's no, wow. you know, they, they, everything is very strict, and you sleep there and with a baseball bat because you might have skinheads <laughs> coming over. Wow. It was it was pretty crazy. scary. Yeah. But yeah, it was crazy, man. <laughs> we were seven people, though. We're seven of us, so we're like, if we got to fight, we're going to fight in gang, you know? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it didn't, didn't happen. But um, so Europe was better to Yard Rock than, than uh, Toronto ever was or, or the rest of Canada. But like I said, we didn't tour Canada enough to make a name for ourselves, you know. Just to that point, there was no kind of tea party or I Mother Earth or some sort of band that was big in English Canada. Kind of a fan of your band that would say, hey, come tour with us across Canada. Like what was your relationship to the other kind of alternative bands in Canada during the 90s? Yeah, well, you know, we played with uh, Rusty in, in Toronto, and then oh. we we brought him here. We did a couple of shows with them, but this was like, you know, two or three, not the whole tour. Right. No, we didn't have that. Um, Grim Skunk had, were more organized that way, and they got to tour Canada quite a bit back then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I joined Grim Skunk uh, in 2004. Yeah. So I've been doing both uh, for for that time. Groove Skunk were more um, had more contacts with these bands than Groovy did because they were out there before, so they made the contacts, you know, right. on the spot. Um, so to, to to your question, yeah, English media was was a harder thing. So we actually decided to press on to Europe more than uh, more than uh, the rest of Canada, and the states were pretty much off limits because it was so hard to get through. And we knew that uh, touring conditions were awful. Even Grim Skunk were not even touring uh, U.S. anymore uh-huh. in those conditions. It was it was hard. It was dangerous, and uh, you'd like six bands and get your shit out of the, uh, in the truck uh, before the other band gets on, and they get their vans uh, broken into wow. a couple of times. And it was very very hard to the huh. point where after a while they just it was not even interesting to do that anymore, unless you're on a really nice tour with uh, touring band. Um, it wasn't worth it. So with Grim Skunk, we got to tour Europe uh, with Voivod. We got to play with Suicidal Tendencies wow, awesome. uh, for, for a 10-day run. We played with uh, then the next year. Yeah, man. Then the next year we played with um, Infectious Grooves, which oh, was Mike's right. other band. 
and because he liked the band and we he thought we were pros and we were, and he liked us and so we had us on two of his tours we we, we toured with Danko Jones a couple of times huh. so we had more of a contact in Europe than we did here wow but these were american bands and canadian bands right it's crazy yeah, it is crazy and we toured with fishbone that was the no other way. really nice one so we never got the chance to do that here yeah. you know so but um we toured extensively in Europe with with the, and these were great shows right we would we would open for these bands and yeah. it would have been like 6 800 or 1200 people would show up and huh. it was good shows for us we were selling a lot of merch and getting a getting a new fans and all that and having decent sleeping conditions and tour busing and like, <laughs> <laughs> the dream come true that's right yeah. <laughs> so we uh, we sort of turned our attention to to Europe more you know we've talked about grimskunk uh, quite a bit actually throughout the podcast already and Maybe for folks um, who aren't that familiar with them, can you maybe um, introduce a, a 90s song of theirs and uh, maybe describe that, something that I could play on the podcast? Just something to kind of uh, get people into the band, I guess, who might not be aware of them. So Grimskunk, a bit like Groove Yardvark, had some demo tapes out early. Uh, they, they released an EP, uh, Exotic Blend, in 90. And their first record came out uh, same year as Eater's Digest, which is Grimskunk, Grimskunk. Um, from that record, I would uh, suggest their very first song called Silverhead, mm. which is a Joe Evil composition. So w- what makes Grimskunk uh, unique is that they have an organ, two guitars, two singers, uh, one singer that's, that has a nice uh, high melodic voice, and Joe Evil on, on organ has the more hardcore voice. Huh. So Grim Skunk has really definite sounds with the two definite singers, and they put a lot of B3 organ into their music, which gives it a really like, church-like, uh, uh, heavy, like almost satanic kind of vibe. And um, Silverhead has all of that into it. It's the first song of the first record. I think it would be a good introduction for anybody to discover this amazing band.
Now, going into the third record, um, which is actually is my favorite record of yours, I think. Okay. If, if I had to pick one, I think. It's just, um, there's a lot more kind of different, I don't know if it's percussion or you're bringing in kind of Middle Eastern instruments or something, but something a little more prevalent that you're adding to the sound, I think, on that one. Um, I, I went to Mexico a couple of, a couple of um, winters in a row. I'd never been down south. And it was something I, I would wanting to do, but I had zero money back then. And I saved up enough money to be able to make it down there, meet a friend who was there already. And that was a huge influence on opening my radar to different kinds of sounds and, and, uh, and melodies. And uh, so especially on songs like Amphibien and uh, Miloka, uh, that's, that's actually four guitars that are all tuned. All the strings are tuned to A. Hmm. It's all the same. Uh, the same note, but in different octaves, a bit like a sitar. Interesting. And because I had a beat-up guitar down there that went into the ocean, <laughs> it was like unplayable. <laughs> and uh, so there was just a couple of strings left, and and it was the A. And I managed to just play that, you know, when I had nothing uh, better to do. And and I came up with these riffs, and I kept them and brought them home. And I, I think I had a like, pretty interesting way of of playing the guitar so i tuned all the strings to a and and now i had six of them it sounded much better but i had written these melodies in in new mexico and came back and wrote those two songs and that's pretty much defined a bit where we were going it was going to be a different direction than vacuum and that was the idea too was not to make the 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 same record again uh, Mm -hmm. because we were listening to different stuff and um i'd taken uh music history lessons uh, at CJEP, or I mean at university, and that was a big influence too, to try to open the mind to other sonorities and, and other styles. And so that, and again, we had a lot of time at, at Studio Plan Vert, at, at Green Plan Studios, to do this record. And by that time, uh, the studio was up and running, was making some money, so we had even more leisure time to, to, to work out these songs. And it was great to be able to take the time to, to try different instruments, try different sounds, and try to widen, widen our, our radar of, of what Vacuum was. And uh, I'm glad you think it's, it's maybe our strongest record. I think so. I, I think it's our strongest record uh, in many ways, and I think it's the, our most diverse record of the gang. Absolutely, um, yeah. it, It's got good production, and I think the songs are strong, too. It, it was a lot of fun to do, and, and once again, these were all new songs from after Vacuum, so there was Two years after the two, after the the Germany shows, we we, had, we did a lot of shows. We went straight back to the studio, and and like I said, we were fortunate enough to spend our weeks there, our our weekdays there, and, and tour during the weekends, that we would commit ourselves fully to to this record. And um, I thought it came out great. Yeah, like I'm just gonna name some titles here that I'm a huge fan of. Um, Tele d'Argique. Yes. Amphibians. Ingurgitus. Yes. Um, oh, Pharmaciel. Yeah. And Fair. All those, I mean, yeah. I mean, take me through some of those tracks. Man. Yeah, well, Far is, because um, Grimskunk's manager, Simon, died um, in a um, skateboard accident, and that song's wow. about that. Huh. So, yeah, it was a very uh, sad song. We, we wrote it after we went to this, this funeral. Huh. We were actually recording up north, because a friend of ours invited us to his uh, uh, chalet, and we had some recording time there, and we found out about his death, and he was, he was like, a great friend of ours. Wow. So we went to Montreal to the funeral and came back and wrote that song like on the spot so that it gives it a little bit of a nostalgic feeling to it. But yeah, and like Engurgitus was like our take on new metal, if you like, which was super popular in 98, mm-hmm. down tuned to mm-hmm. A, you know, super heavy riff. Uh, a bit of um, sampling there is our first dabblings with sampling. 
um, that was like a you know, it was like a test. We wanted to try on a, this kind of groovy, heavy, new metal type. You guys did it well, man. You pulled it off, sir. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, I thought it was good too. And we had a lot of our friends on that. Uh, Marco and Oscar from Anonymous, a great metal band from here. Huh. Um, and great, a big path. He does one of the verses. He was in a band called Raid, Chantal, and Joel from Overbase. So it's a collective affair, and you could just, which was great because every time we played it live here in Montreal, we'd get all the friends together and uh, mosh it out together on stage. So it's like a, a nice party song. Yeah, perfect one to play in the podcast, and it kind of introduced the folks to yeah. a whole wide array of uh, Quebec hard rock. Absolutely, music. yeah, because you, you'll you'll get some anonymous, some overbass, and some raid in there, uh, which is great. And these are all people we, like I said, our whole crowd that pretty much uh, created the second wave of. of uh, punk or alternative music in Quebec, it's all those people, you know. Huh. It's all people that we're hanging out with since the beginning. So it was great to have them all together on one recording, and uh, it, it's the song that finishes our set to this day. you mentioned earlier that by the third record you had gotten out of your deal with the label yeah after that yeah after that it really started to to go sour um and 
and that was a shame because I was starting to lose um, uh, my inspiration. You know, we were getting into a lot of fights and uh, not fights, but uh, arguments with them. And you know, we were wondering because vacuum was selling like crazy. Yeah. We sold almost thirty thousand, which wow. for our type of music was a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And where was the money? And we we had no idea with how things were working, and we didn't, huh. didn't get straight answers. It was really frustrating, and he even started to divide the band uh, amongst ourselves. And then Mark, one of our guitarists, he was. He wanted out, and he was no more interested, and that was a that was a big blow because things were going pretty well, uh, nonetheless. But yeah, that was hard for us to not know where the money was going, and we, we, are they trustable? Do we can trust these people? What are they doing? And um, so it, it was a hard time to 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 just try and 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 play straight music because we had to take care of the business side, and we 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 had no faith in these people anymore, and it was a shame, you know, because it it really kind of stopped us in our tracks so at that time after that we wanted out and that's well we actually well like i say we were we signed for seven records so we were still four records out of coming in, out of that contract so we were sort of um i mean we were uh, stuck by the throat so we tried to keep our spirits up but it was hard at that point mm-hmm. because you know we, we didn't think we were good our team was like letting us down and but anyway we we Trudged along, and we finished our, our studio project with the last one, which is um, uh, Therapy, which came out in 2002, which would be our last record. Uh, but, like, the trilogy of Grooveyard, right, for, talking about the 90s, mm-hmm. I think is what your podcast is mostly about, yeah, was, you yeah. know, Eater's Digest, Vacuum, and Eric Therap, and those were definitely high times for Groovy and, and for the whole Quebec scene back then. These were like the, our, our glory days uh, in which uh, it seemed that everybody was into it and and it was great. It was great to, to have people listen to different st- the different kind of music that were, they were used to on the radio. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people, that, it's not that they didn't like heavier music, they didn't have access to it, you know? Like me and you, like we're, we, we love music, we, we get our information where we, where we can, where we know where to get it. But a lot of people just don't know. That's right, and yeah. They don't have that support system around them to tell them why you should listen to this and that. Not everybody has a big brother, big sister, or parents that feed them, you know, bring them to, to uh, the the way of the rock. But So the, um, Groovy was a good, um, it was a good stepping stone to into that world, you know. I'm just curious, as we're kind of winding down to the end of the decade here, um, the end of the 90s, um, at the beginning of the '90s, it was really, you know, it was a it was a handful, if less than that, of of Quebec kind of hard rock alternative metal bands. It was mm-hmm. groovy, it was Grimmskunk, maybe Voivod. Now, had you seen that scene grow throughout the decade? And um, what were your kind of feelings? Um, I mean, did you have people coming up to you saying you were a big influence on them? Uh, what was the kind of transition like from the beginning of the decade to the end of it for you? That that is a, a super nice, good question. Because if yes, for, in the beginning of the '90s, I could count on four hands the number of bands <laughs> that existed, <laughs> and we would all we all knew each other quite well because we would play with each other all the time, right? Because there was we were all very noticeable to each other because there were not many of those. And I have to say that one of the I guess Groovy Hard Rock's legacy would be like exactly that. So many kids would come up to me and say, "Dude, thanks for showing us that oh, it's possible. Awesome. Thanks for showing us that we could do it in French. Thanks for showing us that we could just do it." You know, like now there's record labels that cater to younger bands like Indica, and like that did not exist in our day. It was all major labels, huh. and like BMG and Sony's and and 
So that's why MPV, when they took us on, they were one of the first labels too. But the, that did not exist. There was no infrastructure uh, that was built around um, alternative music. So our legacy was like, yeah, we sort of built this infrastructure from, from scratch, and then smaller labels began to emerge. And then bands, uh, I mean, people from bands started labels, and that's what you want. <laughs> yeah. You want musicians helping other musicians, right? Uh -huh. And so Bounce Sound and Dare to Care and uh, these labels coming up after Indica. Indica were really the first to show how it, it's possible to have an indie label and to, have, and to be successful. That was a that was huge for 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 them. It was huge for Quebec, and now there's like tons of them. And so, man, I mean, bands multiplied. <laughs> we went from maybe thirty to I would say maybe six hundred wow. uh, in ten years. It was crazy. I mean, there was so much rock going on in Quebec. I mean, too much so that none of them, not everybody could survive. You know, <laughs> not everybody wanted to make a big living. But it was ex extremely enriched, enriching uh, period of time. And I will admit that Groovy and Grimskunk and, and Voivod and Overbass and Barf and all these other bands, Redcore, were, had everything to do with that because there was a lot, a lot of rock shows going on and, and it, it inspired a lot of kids to, to rock, you know, Absolutely. to pick up an instrument and form a band. So from 90 to 99, man, it, it, it exploded. It really did. And then the rock became less and less popular of the 2000s and then you know it was like a downfall after that but that's another story <laughs> exactly another episode yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think you're you're covering the perfect uh, era i think the 90s were were uh, especially in quebec anyway, i mean in quebec and, and around the world were the best years for Absolutely. that you know we played edge fest and we we'd play uh, these huge festivals would stock on bows for tens of thousands of people. Like, it was huge, man. Just people were into it. It was so cool. We got to play with Bad Religion and and and, and Three Doors, all these American bands. We played with Creed at one point. <laughs> nice. You know, we, it was like we were playing everywhere and, and these great stages, and we were putting on great shows and putting a lot of effort into our live shows, and it was fun, man. And, you know, ask anybody around here, they say, Groovy, we would always give a good show, and we're always super try to be the, uh, a very professional band and be super tight band and, and have a, a good team around us, to, you know, good roadies, good sound man, good light man. You know, we, and we, we pay these people well. That was, we prided ourselves in having a good team, a great team, a team that's fun to work with, that are pleasant. You know, we arrive on a gig and everybody's happy to see us and we're all, we're all happy to see them. We know each other and we, we grew together and, and we became friends with all, all the technicians around Quebec and it was great, you know, to have feel that we were part of something bigger than ourselves. And the 90s were everything about that, you know. Uh, beautifully said, sir. Um, now, we've talked a lot about the past of Groovy. Um, what is the kind of present day and future of the band? Well, here's, here's what happened. Um, we, we call it quits in 2005, after mm -hmm. 19 years, and it had a lot to do with our record company shit. So, not. Right. so we did like a farewell tour for 32 dates, and we called it a day. And that was that, and I was, we were really happy with that. But, man, the telephone... At one point, we'd start ringing and say, you know, we guys available to do this show and this show. And <laughs> there was a lot of money, uh, like more money than we ever been thrown at. And so like, well, no, no, no. And at one point, there was a Francophonie, this huge festival that they, they got us. They made an offer we couldn't refuse. And nice, so yeah. we, come, we came back seven years later, 2012. But we, we told ourselves, I don't think we're, we have it in us or even the time to record material like we used to. Right. Because we all have jobs, and well, I don't have kids, but the guys have kids, and mm -hmm. it's a, it's it's a different reality. Yeah, and so and I respect that. So 
we said, well, let's see, you know, let's see if it's possible if we're ever going to have the time to write all this, all this new material. So, and you know, it's been what many years now, and it's not happened yet. <laughs> but we're still together, and we play the, the odd show, and we well, we make important shows like we 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 choose them yeah. yearly, you know, yeah. and like for for um, events, it has to become an event. So that we're good at that, and I play in, in six or seven different bands, so I get <laughs> really busy. But the fact is, we're still together, and we still enjoy each other's company, and we yeah. still r- remain friends. So we're we've, we're not saying no to collaborating together uh once more but it's excellent it's hard to find the time yeah absolutely yeah. now you know that than it ever was and um we know everybody has jobs and uh, everybody's happy with their with their lives but it's it's hard to let go you know it's been such a huge part of our lives so mm-hmm. you know it's fun to keep it together that way well we recently uh, recorded a, a cover of uh the devil went down to georgia by oh, Tony daniels nice uh in french the no, job is going to alma so that that'll be coming out it's a compilation called zoo um, that Slam Records uh, put out every right year. On. So that'll be our it's our first studio experience uh, since 2005. Wow, that's awesome. So that was great to uh, reconnect that way. And, you know, I will admit it sort of gave us the, the jitters for more, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. We don't put pressure on, on ourselves yeah, for, for sure. that. And we have some shows booked next year, like pretty big festivals. So we keep it that way, coming low-key. And, yes, we will be putting out the rest of uh, our, of our stuff on vinyl, because there's Arik Terap and uh, Mazotherapy and the live one to do. Right, right. Because we it's going to be a box set of five LPs. Oh, nice. So we're, we're up to because of the the COVID, of course, we were stuck yeah. on the tracks there because we would have done Arik Terap a while ago. But we're we're going back to that. So we'll put that box set together in the next uh, couple of years, and and we'll see what happens if we want to do uh, new material. All right. Well, uh, final question. Um, no, I have a playlist of all kind of 90s can rock on Apple and Spotify. So I'm asking all the guests who contribute uh, two singles and one deep cut from uh, the okay. 90s materials. How would you like uh, yeah. Groovy to be represented? Well, let's go with the uh, Yetzkel Kern. Okay. Is that good for you? Perfect. Okay. Um, let's go with, um, let's go for one for each record. Noise Solution off Vacuum. Ah, nice. I uh, kind of like that one. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I like the speedy part of it. And um, for Eric uh, Terrap, how about uh, Petit Change? Is that okay for you? Yeah, that works for me. It's totally, uh, it's all about the guest here. So however you like Groovy to represent it, I'm fine with. Okay, thanks, man. I, 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 I stand by my choices. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me today about your experience in the 90s, man. It's been uh, fantastic. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for thinking of me. And um, let me tell you, I have not spoken so much English in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash rave drool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. And if you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself, the tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. 
Until next time, friends, take care.